Thanks for joining us at our Foothills Church podcast. We exist to help people find and follow Jesus. If you're new here, we'd love to connect with you at foothills.cc. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, spinoffs. Uh, we are going to be looking at a lot of different uh, characters within the narratives of Scripture that we kind of don't not necessarily gloss over, but we don't look too deeply in. And so our, our character today is King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was militarily, he was the most powerful conquering king of the Babylonian Empire. He was the wealthiest. Um, he was the longest reigning. He reigned for 43 years, and during that 43-year reign, he was the most influential man during that time. And so he was a, a battle-worn conqueror. Uh, but he was also an amazing builder. He was an architect. He was a constructor. Um, you may have heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. So these were in the city of Babylon, and they're listed on the, the list of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He was the one that, that was involved with building those. And a lot of archaeologists think that just the, like the perimeter walls of Babylon should also be on that list just because they were so massive and they were so intricately built. And so he was a, a conqueror and he was a, a brilliant constructor. And so he had a, a lot of really cool things going his way. But he did have one major problem and... I think it's a problem that we all have, and his problem was pride. It's pride. Now, we know that pride is a sin, but were you aware of the fact that pride is actually like the root? Pride is the source. It's the catalyst of all other sin that comes out of our, our lives and in the lives of everyone else. Now, you might be Skeptical. Let me, let me tell you why that's the case. You know, pride is the desire to lift ourselves up beyond what God created us to be. Pride causes us to view ourselves in an overinflated, egocentric, kind of center of the universe kind of mentality. Okay? Do you guys know anyone like that? Anybody else see that person in the mirror today? I did. Um, but when, when we think of ourselves like that, in this like everything's about me, I'm kind of the ruler of my own world, what we naturally do is this causes us to reject any notion that somebody else can tell us what to do, has the right to tell us what to do. And it actually, you know, it kind of makes us want to decide for ourselves what we do and decide for ourselves what is right and wrong for us. It's kind of that whole, like, live your truth kind of mentality. And when we think of it in this way, what we see is that at its core, the essence of pride is not just our desire to be greater than another human being, but it's actually a desire to be greater than God. It makes us want to be our own God, who we can decide what's right and wrong. It's this kind of mentality that got Satan booted out of heaven. If you're familiar with that story, we read about it in Isaiah and Ezekiel. It's the reason why our first parents, Adam and Eve, got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Do you remember that? They ate the apple because they wanted to, the, the, you know, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. They wanted to decide for themselves what was right or wrong. They wanted to have that knowledge. And it's 
That same kind of pride, that same kind of twisted mentality that causes all the discontentment, all the contention, and all the wickedness that comes out of our lives as we attempt to be our own kings, our own queens, and our own god of our own little prideful world. And no one's exempt. No one is impervious to pride. It's in all of us. And so what do we do? Something has to happen. We have to do something. And so here's, here's a question. Uh, and at my house, we get these little copperhead snakes that come into our yard. Do you guys get those? You guys get them? Am I the only one? Great. We, we got to move. Uh, no. Okay. Uh, let, let, me just, let me just see it right now. Who are like snake people? You just love snakes. They're like your, your friends. Excellent. I see some hands. Good. Keep your hands up real high. Just a second. Hey, security, let's keep a body on those friends. Excuse me. Yeah, no, guys, let me just tell you, snakes are the worst. We all know this. Any creature that leaves skin where it's been, that is a bad creature, okay? Um, I, I, hate, I hate snakes more than almost anything. This is, maybe this sums it all up. This is how much I hate snakes. If I had to be locked in a room with snakes or Alabama fans, okay, I'd pick snakes, but you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying. We got them again, guys, right? Up top. Okay, um, moving on. Look what Andrew Murray, look what Andrew Murray wrote about pride. He says this. He says, could you see what every stirring of pride does to your soul? You would beg of everything you meet to tear that viper from you, though even with the loss of a hand or an eye. Pride is poisonous, and it has to be dealt with. It has to be killed. Now, those, you know, those little snakes that come into our yard, what do, we, what do we do with them? We kill them, right? Separate head from body, or, you know, you have your wife do it. However, it works for you. But the fact is, they have to be killed, and this is the same with pride. But here's the problem. We can kill the little ones in the grass, but we can't kill the pride in here. You know why? Because it's in the heart. Only God can kill and exterminate the pests that are in here. But graciously, mercifully, God does this all the time, and he does this by his power working through his divine-inspired word. And so with that, let's get into the word. Uh, turn to Daniel chapter 2. If you have your Bibles and if you're using an app to look at these passages, uh, go to the ESV version. It'll be a little easier for you. Um, but we'll see in chapters 2, 3, and 4 that God uses three different experiences to reshape the way that Nebuchadnezzar views himself, views the world, and views God. And he does this, God does this interestingly through a dream, a couple dreams. He uses some teenagers, and he uses a mental breakdown um, to, to do this. So, Daniel chapter Two. In that chapter, uh, the two main characters are this, are this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, and a godly man named Daniel. And God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream that, that, kind, of, that kind of freaks him out. He, the king can't sleep, and he demands to know the interpretation of the dream. And so um, there's a lot of things that, that take that take place, um, and I'm not going to be able to hit all of them today. Please go back and read chapters 2, 3, and 4 sometime. You've got time. It's a holiday, those kind of things, so read, read the Bible for a little bit. Um, and so 
he, he calls, he has this dream, it freaks him out. Then he calls together these, like, this like, wise little council that he has, some educated kind of wizard type. And so he t- says to these guys, he says, guys, I want you to tell me the interpretation of this dream, but so that I know your interpretation is real, I want you to also tell me the dream that I had. So he's not going to tell them because he knows that if he tells them, they're going to make up some, you know, some hooey that this is the interpretation but he's going to know. And he says, oh yeah, and if you can't do that, I'm going to kill everyone. And I'm going to kill all of you and your families. All right. Well, Daniel, this godly man, he's in this little group, and he doesn't want to be killed, and so he starts praying to God, asks God to give him the info that he wants. God does this, and so Daniel goes to the king with this info, and he starts by telling Nebuchadnezzar that through this dream, God has told the king what his future is. So through this dream, Nebuchadnezzar is going to know what his future is. And, the, you know, the dream is kind of odd. It's, it's the, the king had a dream about a big statue, and the statue was broken into different sections. The top was gold, kind of the chest and the, and the arms were silver, torso, upper legs were bronze, calves, lower legs were iron, feet were iron and clay. So in typical dream fashion, this was really weird, right? Dreams are just generally weird. Yes? You guys have weird dreams? Yeah. If you were to see the dreams that I have at times, you'd think that I was on mushrooms, or probably a lot of mushrooms, actually. Uh, but let's move on. In, in the dream, something happens to this statue. Look at Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. Look what it says. This is Daniel talking to the king. He says, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. It just became like dust. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that was the dream. So Daniel begins to give the interpretation. And through this, he says, he tells the king that, Nebuchadnezzar, in your dream, you are the head of gold. God has given you your preeminent position. This power that you have, God has placed you there. And the rest of these sections, those are other kings and other kingdoms that will come after you. And then Daniel tells the king what the stone was, because there was a stone, remember, that crushed this and everything crumbled and blew away. He tells the king what the stone is. Look at verse 44. He says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure." So a kingdom was going to be established that crushes every other kingdom and lasts forever. So what's the pride-killing lesson that God taught Nebuchadnezzar in this dream, and what can we glean from this? Pride-killing lesson number one. We are typical and temporary. We are typical and temporary. Nebuchadnezzar needed to know 
that he wasn't special. In the grand scheme of things, he was just like every other king in every kingdom. It's going to pop up, it's going to be here for a bit, and it's going to fade away. Every battle he won, every building he built, it's all just going to crumble, disintegrate, and be turned into dust and be blown away. He's not special. And so, so why would this kind of, why would this mindset, why would this knowledge be humbling for him, and why would it be hum- humbling for us? If we, if we follow the logic, just follow this logic for a second. If I am just like everyone else, and that everything I possess and all my aspirations are just going to crumble away, turn into dust, and be blown away, what is logically left that would cause me to feel or act superior to anybody else? If it's all dust that's just passing away, everything that we have is just pre-dust. You know, and just like that mindset is like saying, well, I'm, my, my dust pile is better than your dust pile. It's dust. Who cares? Right? It's all going away. And now, this, this may sound like unnecessarily negative and a bit fatalistic, right? Everything's crumbling kind of a thing. But it's, it's this kind of mindset this worldview that causes us to, to have these little snakes that are of pride in our heart that starts to kill those things. And don't take my word for it. Let's look at another king, King David. If, you, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, King David, a man after God's own heart, he wrote um, the book of Psalms, much of the book of Psalms. And this is what he said about this similar mindset in uh, Psalm 39, verse 4. He says this, O Lord, Make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. He says, my life is just, it's just this long. This is it. And my life is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Okay, everyone, take a deep breath. Exhale. That was life. That was it. Look at verse 6. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? He says, my life is short. It's a breath. It's nothing compared to you. My toil is nothing. All of my wealth is going to go to someone else. What's the point? What am I waiting for? What's his response? My hope is in you. I don't have to strive to be better than anyone else. All life is fleeting. All possessions and aspirations are dust. In the end, all true life is only found in you. My hope, my purpose, my meaning can't be in stuff. It has to be in the eternal God because that is all that matters. Anything that matters can't come from a finite, sinful person. All the things that would, you know, inflate our pride or inflame our pride, all of, like, accolades, they don't matter. Criticism, it doesn't matter. Other people's opinions, your wealth, your accomplishments, or lack thereof, they don't matter. All that matters is that one kingdom, that one kingdom that's going to crush everything else and grow into a mountain and last forever. That's the only thing that matters. And what matters is the worldview and the values that that kingdom prescribes, that that king prescribes to his citizens. And those are things like humility, love, 
Christ-likeness, servanthood, these are the things that matter and will last forever because they come from the everlasting God. And do you, can we see how freeing and liberating this would be if the only things that matter is that which come from God? That means I don't have to worry about what people say, think, or feel about me. And they don't have to worry about what we say about them or what we think or feel about them. There's nothing more freeing than caring solely about what God feels and says about you. If we want to live with hearts that are humble, we have to understand, we have to realize and live in the reality that we are typical and we are temporary. But God and his values, those are 100% unique and they are eternal. Now, experience number two. Turn to Daniel uh, chapter 3. This next experience Nebuchadnezzar has is one that most of us probably know. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, in this scene, the king builds a statue. I don't know what this guy has with statues, all right? He's dreaming about them. He's building them. I I don't know. Um, But he builds this statue, and he tells the whole kingdom, he says, I'm going to play some music. After the music ends, you have to bow down and worship my statue, or I'm going to kill everyone, (laughs) or I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. Um, somebody wasn't hugged enough as a kid, okay? Parents, go hug your kids or else, right? Um, so we know what happens. The, guy, uh, the king plays music. Everyone bows down except for these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, there's some people who don't like these three. They snitch to the king that they didn't bow down. And then this happens in Daniel 3, 3 verse 13 to 15. It says this, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of these instruments, horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, whatever that is, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, awesome, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And catch this line. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Just consider for a moment the arrogance and pride that is just dripping from that statement. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This guy, he thinks that he has all power. He thinks that he can't just, that he can not only tell people what to do and what to think, but he thinks he can tell people where to ascribe their worship. He thinks he can kill anybody with immunity, thinks he can do whatever he wants, because why not? He's Nebuchadnezzar the Great, right? And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And what's even more interesting is that he knows what God, these three little Israelites, he knows who they serve, who they truly worship. These are Daniel's friends, right? The same God that told Daniel what this dream was and interpreted it, he knows that these three guys worship that God. So he's putting himself toe to toe with the God of heaven. And we know what happens. They refuse um, they refuse to bow down after the music played. Go read that story. They have just a, a fantastic 
fantastic thing. They say to the king, but I'll, I'll let you go find it. Um, and so the king throws them into the fiery furnace. God saves them miraculously. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing, and the king is humiliated, right? He thought that he had the independent, unilateral, autonomous, God-like power, but the true God taught him pride-killing lesson number two, okay? Number two is we are dependent and powerless. He found out that the only power that he had is what God allowed him to exercise. And if you kind of have to ask permission to do something, you have no power at all. And think of the shift that this would have caused in this guy's brain. He wanted to kill three little Israelite nerds. He wasn't able to do it. They were nerds because they were part of this little wise council. That's not a statement. Never mind. Um, and so, and so he, he couldn't do this. If, if he can't even do that, was God ever going to allow him to win another battle or build another beautiful building? He's Nebuchadnezzar the Great. If he's not doing those two things, what is he? This would have caused him to start questioning everything that he was going to do. Because now he knows that God can stop dead in his tracks any and all of his plans. He'd be forced to wonder, I've got stuff I want to do today. Is God going to let me do it? You know, it's, and it, it should have caused him to kind of rethink, rethink his aspirations and his desires. He should now seek God's guidance, right? Seek his favor before he did something. And if God allowed him to do that thing, shouldn't Nebuchadnezzar then give God the glory? And it's, it's this way of thinking that God, thinking a way about God and viewing the world that God prescribes to citizens of his kingdom. If you look at the book of James, the book of James says this in, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, don't miss this, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So this verse, this verse tells us how we should view ourselves and the world. Number one, how should we view ourselves? We are utterly dependent on God. Number two, how should we view the world? It is completely controlled by an all-powerful, sovereign God. Now, you may be asking, why would this, why would my self-view and why would my worldview affect my day-to-day -day life and why would God care about this? Okay, here's why. How you view yourself and how you view the world determines how you act and who you worship. Your self-view and your worldview determine how you act and who you worship. Here's an example. If I realize that I am completely dependent upon an all-powerful God to allow me to exercise the strength and, uh, you know, exercise strength in the mental whatever to accomplish a goal, if I live in that reality and I believe that, number one, I'm going to conduct myself in a way that is in line with the values that he prescribes to citizens of his kingdom. And number two, When these goals are achieved, I'm going to give him 
all gratitude, all praise, and all glory. Because he gave me strength to do it. He allowed me to exert that power. So I'm going to give him all glory. And this is why we exist in the first place. If you didn't know, you were created and you continue to wake up every, wake up every morning and take a breath, a breath that God didn't promise you yesterday. To, you woke up this morning and we are given the purpose to glorify him supremely. That is why we exist. But when we neglect to do this, do you know what this does to our humanity? If, we, if we're created in God's image, which we are, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. If the pinnacle of God's creation was created to bring him glory, when we neglect to do that out of pride for our own glory, what does that do to our humanity? It diminishes it. It naturalizes it. It animalizes it. It, create, it makes us subhuman. In a way, it turns us into animals who are not acting the way we should, and we only act on like primal urge, fleshly desire and instinct. And isn't this what we see? We see violence, and we see debauchery, and we see all these things. We, we see a world full of human beings acting like animals. And if we were honest, we could see that own kind of animalistic thing in ourselves, and it's because we don't give glory where it's supposed to go. Now look how this flows into the third experience that God gives Nebuchadnezzar. Turn to Daniel chapter 4. The story, surprisingly, it ends, it ends pretty well. It ends really well for, for Nebuchadnezzar, but God does have him go through one more utterly humiliating thing. Um, God gives the king another dream. Again, Daniel interprets it. And when he does, Daniel gives the king some bad news. Uh, this is Daniel 4, verses 24 to 25. It says this. And this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God is basically going to have this guy have a mental breakdown and turn him into an animal. He's going to be outside for like seven years. He's going to sleep out there. He's going to be all dewy. He's going to eat grass. It, God turns him into an animal. And I believe God is showing Nebuchadnezzar and the rest of humanity who gets to read this, God is showing us what happens when we ascribe glory to ourselves and not him. When we choose to live out of our flesh instead of choosing to live out of the spirit of God that honors him, we turn into animals. Now, let's see what happens. Look at verse 28 in chapter 4. It says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. So here's the king. He's walking on the roof. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Looks out over this beautiful city and says, Man, I am awesome. I've really done it this time. I'm great. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. 
And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar took all credit for himself. He looked over this beautiful city and said, I am the one. There's no one like me. Look what I've done. This is for my majesty. I did this. He thought he was responsible for it all. He gave credit to no one else. Have you ever done that? Ever looked at a part of your life that's going well? Maybe you've got a bunch of cash. You look at that bank account and you're like, man... Those financial decisions I made in the fourth quarter of last year, brilliant. I'm like Warren Buffett, but taller. Or maybe you have children who love Jesus, and they're just thriving, they're flourishing in their life, their kids are flourishing. And you think about them, and you think, man, they are, my kids are doing so good, I must be the best parent. Maybe you just took a test, a test in school, <laughs> just crushed it. You know, it's straight A, and you're like, well, <laughs> I mean, I do understand this stuff. I mean, I'm, I could basically teach the class. Maybe you look at your life in view of maybe some others, and you're like, man, I don't know what's, what's wrong with those guys over there, because, you know, look at me. I'm disciplined. I'm principled. Things are going so well. I'm pretty cool. I'm pretty awesome. If that's you, be careful. Be very, very careful. Because remember, who gives us the ability to do the good things that we do? God does, right? And you may be thinking, well, what, is, what about like, so, okay, God gives me the ability. What about like the mindset? What about the desire? What about these other things, like the things that require for me to do those? Like, don't I get credit for like wanting to do those things? No. Hard no. Look at, look at Philippians chapter 2. Look what it says in verse 12 and 13. It says this, it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both, catch this, two things, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul tells us that this good that you do, God doesn't only give you the ability to do it, but he also gives you the will to do it. He gives you the desire. He gives you the motivation. 100% of the credit in the desire to do it and the ability to do it. It all goes to God. He deserves all credit, all gratitude, and all glory for the good that is in our life. So if you find yourself boasting about your success, your fantastic career, your lovely Jesus-loving family, if you boast about your own integrity, your own character, watch your back. Because look what, look what the Bible says in Proverbs 11. It says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Let's look at Proverbs 16. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. One more. 
Proverbs 26, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. God will humble the proud. Make no mistake about that. He will humble the proud. My buddy Chris, he says it this way. He says, be humble or be humbled. God turned this king into an animal and utterly humiliates him. But after a time, God restores him to power. And and look, look what this prideful, pagan, arrogant king, look at the realization, look what God has done in this man's heart to get him to this point. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, says this, At the end of, of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say, What have you done? Now look at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. When the king finally took his eyes off of himself and turned his glory, focused his glory on God, that is when he became truly, freely human. And do you know how God desires for citizens of his kingdom to maximally give him glory? Do you know how we give him glory the most, the way that he has set this up? We're going to look at one more passage. We're going to go back to Philippians. And as, as, I, as we read this together, just, just like focus in on what this passage says, okay? We're all, almost done here. Philippians 2, verse 3 Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, the rest of this is all about Jesus, and this is is the point. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Don't miss this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, here we go, to the glory of God the Father. So how are we to glorify God the Father? By praising the Son. By giving all glory to Jesus. By praising him above all else, bending the knee to him alone, and confessing that he is Lord of our lives. Pride killing lesson number three. Forget yourself Focus on Christ. Forget yourself. Focus on Christ. 
John Piper wrote this about pride. He said, if you long for humility, which I hope we all do, if we long for humility, beware of standing in front of a mirror to test your own authenticity. He says, instead, go to the word of God, the windows of God, fling it open, and gaze on the all-satisfying superiority of Christ. Friends, Jesus is the better conquering king because his kingdom, the kingdom he reigns, will last forever. He's the better conquering king because Jesus doesn't give us an inanimate statue or some impersonal idol to worship or else he's going to kill us. He comes to us in flesh personally, and he walks this earth and doesn't just, and doesn't just like, like want us to worship him or nothing. He, he worships those who reject him, or he, he, he dies in the place of those who reject him, who slap him, who spit on him, and who utterly humiliate him. He dies for those people. And Jesus is the better conquering king because he gives us a perfect example of true humility. And he calls each of us to humble ourselves, to bow the knee, to repent of our misplaced praise, and to bring it back to him. And when we do that, we find true and lasting freedom and joy and ultimate hope. So if you're here today, if you are a Christian, if you have forgotten who your king is, if your praise has, has been pointed towards others or maybe right here to yourself, repent. Repent. Bow the knee again to Jesus Christ, your Savior, King, and refocus your praise. And maybe you're here and you are not a Christian. You need to know that you are living in a world that is created and ruled and sustained by a sovereign God who, in unfathomable love, continues to call out to you. And he says, come to me. You are focusing way out there. You're focusing right in here, and that's wrong. That's going to lead you nowhere. That's going to turn you into an animal that acts on primal instinct and urge. He says, come to me. If, if what we're saying, if what I'm saying this morning is, is resonating in you, that's God drawing you right now, giving you one more opportunity to bow the knee to Jesus, to fulfill your created purpose, and again, find ultimate joy. And if you want to come to the Father, finally, you can do that right now. You can do that just by saying a little prayer like this. Let's all bow our heads. If you want to come to the Father, you feel him drawing you, and you just want to respond, pray a prayer like this. You can say, Jesus, I know that I need you. I know that you alone deserve all the glory. Forgive me, Lord, for worshiping myself, for thinking that I'm all I need. Lord, I know that I am sinful and that sin is a rejection of you and I repent of that. God, by your spirit, help me to live as you would have me live. Thank you for your love for me. Thank you for your forgiveness.
Now, Jesus, we, I just thank you so much, God, for the opportunity to come together. Lord, I pray that you would forgive all of us for our pride. Forgive me for my pride. Thank you for how gentle you are with us. Thank you for your patience. And God, by your spirit, I pray that we would leave here today forgetting about ourselves, realizing that we are we're not special and that we are completely dependent on you and allow us to leave, Father, focusing on you alone, Jesus. It's in your all-powerful name that we pray, amen.